more than 40 years after the marathon of hope, I think it's fair to say that now Terry Fox is and remains a Canadian symbol, a Canadian icon. You saw the reaction earlier this year. Remember they announced the changes to the passport and the image of Fox on the marathon of hope, an image that had been on the passport or on the current passport was going to be removed. There was a huge outcry. Right. So, yes, Canadians have not just fond memories uh, of Terry Fox and, and the uh, Marathon of Hope, but a lot of Canadians who, who don't even really remember it or weren't even born when it happened know about Terry Fox and the inspiration that his journey created. So there's very much a lasting legacy here. But I mean, 40 years ago, he was just a, a young guy, almost a kid dealing with a really serious health challenge and wanting to do something to make a difference, wanting to help others who were going through the same thing that he was going through, wanting to inspire. Early on, there wasn't a lot of attention on the Marathon of Hope. That that did change, obviously, and it's why we still talk about it to this day. Uh, Someone who was there and someone who saw it from the beginning and saw what it became and spent time with Terry, got to know Terry, uh, during those months, it was Bill Vigors. He was with the Canadian Cancer Society at the time and was uh, assigned to the Marathon of Hope to, to help raise awareness about it. So that put him in a position where he was with Terry each day uh, through into the uh, tragic end in June of 1981 when he passed away. Uh, he's written about all of this in a new book. It's called Terry and Me, the inside story of Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope. And Bill joins us on the line here this afternoon. So great to have you with us here, Bill. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. And that's a, a, a wonderful introduction you just uh, gave there. Uh, you really captured that summer. Well, I appreciate that, Bill. And, and I mean, you know, this, this is very personal for you at a certain level. I think you're like a lot of Canadians in understanding, you know, the impact and the legacy. But you were also there and you, you knew Terry. Um, what, why did you want to, you know, share this story now after all these years? It's 43 years since the run in 1980, and um, ever since the run, even during the run, uh, I, I talked about Terry continually, and, and the run ended, and my love for him and, and what he did never changed, and I, I talked about him continually, uh, and telling stories about what he was like and, and, and uh, what the run was like and the, the difficulties that he ran into, and people, I, I would finish and people say, you got to write a book, Bill. Yeah. And uh, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a writer. Um, so I, I did take a crack at it a couple of times, and uh, I just I, I gave up. And about um, about last January, not this past January, the January before, and I have to back up a little bit. In 2015, the Museum of History in uh, Gatineau put on a year-long display called Running into the Heart of Canada which was about Terry, and it was a spectacular uh, display, and and uh, it, it traveled across the country. I think it was at the Sports Hall of Fame there. And um, the gentleman who put that together, Sheldon Posen, after he had done all of his research, said to me, even back then, you have to write a book because you're the only guy who remembers the whole thing. And over the years, you know, we've lost a lot of the people who were part of the run that helped Terry. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually, it was my wife who finally convinced me. Sheldon started contacting me last year and built how's the book coming as a joke, but then it wasn't a joke anymore. And finally, my wife, Sherry, sat down with me and said, you owe it to Canadians to tell the story. 
about who Terry was. Uh, it's it's history, and it's it's his legacy, and you know it better than anybody else. So I tried. I started last year. Uh, it took me almost a year to write. Uh, at the beginning, it was very discouraging. I've, I've in about three or four chapters, and I called uh, Ian Harvey, a gentleman who was helping me with it, and I said, "Ian, this is not working." I said, "It's it's." It's, I'm reading it, I'm going back and reading it over, and I'm trying to edit it, and, and basically it's, it's, it's not good. Yeah. I actually use the word crap. <laughs> really? And, and he said, stop editing. Keep writing. Don't go back. And that's what I did. And I found that as I went along, it all started to pour out of my brain. I, you know, people used to say during the run, are you taking pictures or you're keeping a diary? And I'd point at my head and I'd say, no, I'm making a film up here. And that film, 43 years later, still plays as vivid as the day I was there. I, I joke that at 76, I can't find my car keys, right. but I can tell you exactly where we stopped on Highway 7 coming out of Ottawa. Yeah. So um, it was to, there's two gen, at least two generations since Terry run. And we have new Canadians, many new Canadians. <laughs> and they know Terry as a hero. And that's all they know of. They know a bit of his story. He bristled at the word hero. He thought people at one point were losing his vision about why he was doing it. He only had one reason to do it, and that was to uh, do what he could to find a cure for cancer. And um, I decided that, you know, I think, you know, when I started, I went, oh, everybody knows everything about Terry. And I tell a story, I went, I've never heard that. And when I finished writing the book, the comments I'm, I'm getting is people are saying, like you said, I thought I knew everything about Terry Fox, and I'm finding out that um, I didn't know everything about him. One of the things that you're going to find out is what a wonderful sense of humor he was, he had, um, and which shows that he was just a regular guy, which is what he used to say. I'm no different than you. I'm just a regular person. Yeah. So it's April of 1980. He he sets out uh, to do this, flies out to, to Newfoundland. St. John's is where it all begins. And so you were with then the Canadian Cancer Society at the time. So how did you end up connecting with Terry? Well, I had only been working for them. I had been a volunteer for the society for years, and, and I was very involved in, in uh, my community. I grew up in St. Thomas, Ontario, and I was part of the community and a volunteer with the Cancer Society. And I applied for a job. I was, a, I was manager, actually, I was a manager of Chamber of Commerce and Well, and I applied for the job as the head of fundraising and public relations for the provincial uh, division. And I got the job. And uh, I found out later that two of the volunteers who had interviewed me for a different position said, hire this guy because he thinks outside the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even know there's a box exists, let alone think inside it. So um, I'm two months into my job, and Harry Rollins, who was the executive director of the Cancer Society, came to my office door with a, a literally one-paragraph letter, and he said, there's a kid running across Canada. You want to go see what you can do for him? So for a while, I followed him from afar as he went across Newfoundland, and I first spoke to him in New Brunswick, or Nova Scotia, rather, and I knew at the time he was kind of bummed out because things just weren't happening. And uh, this is long before cell phones and the Internet. So we communicated from telephone booths. Uh, he would make his media calls, or he'd call me from a, a payphone collect. And I remember the first conversation I had with him, and I'm trying to give him uh, 
you know, some hope, for lack of a better phrase, that things will get better you know, as, you, as you get into the more populated areas. And I said, when you get to Ontario, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I'd like to meet Bobby Orr. I'd like to meet Daryl Sittler. I want to go to the CN Tower. I want to go to the Blue Jays game. And I want to meet Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. And I'm a small-town kid, and I'm at the other end of the line going, oh, okay, all right. The worst thing anybody can ever say to you is no. So the next day, between myself and my, uh, she was more than assistant. She was my right-hand person, Deborah Kirk. We started making calls. So when he called back the next day, I said, Terry, uh, uh, Settler's on, uh, CN Tower's on, uh, Blue Jays are on. Uh, Bobby Orr is going to be in Europe, but he'll find us along the road. And at that time, uh, Pierre was in, uh, uh, the prime minister was someplace up in Europe, and we did finally hook up to him. And um, he said, you can get this to happen? And I said, yeah, you just get to Ontario, and we'll take, uh, we'll take off. I was bluffing, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, I was just trying to boost his spirits. And then I flew down to New Brunswick, and I met him for the first time. And those two days are burnt into my memory of spending the first two days with him on the road in New Brunswick near the Quebec border. So those early days, and you mentioned you know his spirits being down, um, that there wasn't really a lot of attention in, in the early stages of the Marathon of Hope, was there? No, the setup of the Cancer Society, it was... It was a bottom-up organization. It was a volunteer organization. And so you had a national office, you had a provincial office, then you had districts, and then you had the communities. Well, nobody could tell anybody what to do. So national office could say, yes, we're going to involve, uh, we're going to support Terry Fox's run. But when it came to the provinces, they could say yes or no. Uh, Quebec bowed out because of just one gentleman's uh, uh, decision. I, I do have to stress that they are the, one of the biggest supporters of the annual run now. And um, the other ones, like down east, it, with their organizations were like one-man organizations, so they did the best they can. Ontario was a little bit bigger, you know, with, with, their, with their staff. Not many. There was probably only about 20 staff. And um, Ontario, a lot of people don't realize that Ontario, where he really took off, almost didn't support him. Um, the two largest districts, which were Toronto and Hamilton, uh, didn't want to do it. They said, we don't have the volunteer manpower. And I kept on saying it. I'd already met Terry. And I said, you don't, we don't need the volunteers. It's a self-fulfilling run. It just happens. And um, it really came down to this meeting one, one uh, night. And I got a call from a guy by the name of John Simpson who was uh, shooting the documentary. And he was in Quebec City. He'd gone down there to catch up with Terry. And he calls me um, and he said, the guys haven't had a shower for a week. All three of them are sleeping in that Ocano van. It stinks. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they haven't had their clothes washed in two weeks. They've got colds. They've run out of money. And if you don't do something fast, this thing's not going to last another week. And so there was an emergency meeting called, and all these volunteers, about 40, came in to Toronto for this meeting. And um, it boiled down to, are we in or are we out? And at the last minute, Hamilton changed their mind. Toronto didn't. Um, but they got outvoted. And I was literally sitting on the steps of the hotel in the meeting room with my suitcase, ready to join them outside of Drummondville. But I couldn't leave until this vote. And it passed, and Mr. Rollins turned Raymond and he, he literally said, go. And I ran up the stairs, caught a, a red eye to 
uh, Montreal and drove out with a, another gentleman I took along to help translate for us. And that was the beginning of the greatest adventure of my life. So all this going on behind the scenes, but this doesn't happen, you know, without Terry and Terry being willing to do this, basically running a marathon a day and everything that he was dealing with. How did he do it? How did he press through it all? That was my question from the very first day. Um, I, I talked about being with him that first morning in, in, uh, in New Brunswick, and uh, he gets up every morning. That was his schedule at 4 o'clock. 5 o'clock, he's starting to run. And I'm out on the Trans-Canada Highway, and out there it's a two-lane highway. There's hardly anything on the road other than transport trucks. And uh, we pull out uh, to a spot, and I don't know why we're pulling over, and Doug's, that's his friend who was driver, is backing up and forward. And he, what he was looking for was a white plastic bag that he had put down the night before. So what Terry insisted was that he had to step out of the van onto the, that white plastic bag so that nobody could ever say that he didn't run every step of the way. And if we were in an urban area, he'd touch a telephone pole, a fire hydrant, and do that. And at the end of the day, he'd do the same. I can remember that first morning in the darkness, first seeing him silhouetted by the transport truck lights, and even those were passed very rarely, and when they did, they shook the whole van. And uh, he ran past the van, nothing said. The next mile, Daryl, his brother, gets out with a glass of water, still nothing. They, um, And I'm watching him, and my first reaction is, just exactly what you said. How's he doing this? Yeah. Like this is this is superhuman, and the, and I'm looking at the look on his face, and I can see the pain in it. And he's like, he's almost staring off into nothing while he's running. And at one point later on in the morning, I said to turn to Doug and I said, "How do you watch him do this every day?" And Doug said, "I don't." And at first, I didn't know what he meant. What he meant was, as his friend, he couldn't watch his buddy get out there and run. Um. But as he said, and a lot of the times I use it, and I'm in this, and talking to you, I'm going to use a lot of Terry's words. Um, what people would say to him, doesn't it hurt? Aren't you in pain? And he'd say, yeah. And he said, you know, the first three or four miles, it really hurts, but then I get into it. And he said, but I have a choice. He said, I can quit running anytime I want. He said, but the people, particularly the kids that he was with when he was going through cancer treatment, he said, they can't quit. They got to keep going, so I'm not going to quit because uh, I, I may be a dreamer, maybe fooling myself, but I have no choice. I have to dream. I have to do whatever I possibly can to try and find a cure for this disease. And I think he mentally he overcame the pain by he would just drift off, and when it was really bad, he'd think about the time he was in the hospital. He would. He'd tell me that. And, he's, and as he was sitting around talking to you, he would tell you the same thing. So what was that like then when he had to finally end it? And, you know, did, did you see it coming at that point? I'm sorry, the, uh, the first part of that question? Just, you know, what that was like when he, when he had to come to grips with the, the reality that he, he wasn't going to be able to, to see this through. He, you know... A lot, you know, a lot, a lot of things in retrospect as years go by. We never suspected that the cancer was returning. When I say we, myself, Douglas' friend, Daryl, the ones that were there with him every single day, um, 
we knew when he was in northern Ontario he had a cold, and that's what we thought it was. So when the cancer returned, it was a complete shock. Um, he had been given a clean bill of health from the cancer end of it by the doctors before he had started. What And you'll find in the book, and unfortunately the book doesn't quite explain it, that something got dropped there. He had an enlarged heart, but it was not a birth defect. It was caused by the cancer drugs that he took when he was first diagnosed. So the doctors were far more concerned about his heart giving out on him than the cancer returning. Um, also, there was a lack of communication between national office and the guy on the road. I was not aware of that. I'm the guy on the road running the day-to-day, you know, as I said to Terry, you just run and I'll try and organize everything else for you. Nobody ever told me that part. Although if you read his diary, even when he was training, he ran, by the way, he ran 3,000 miles before he started. He didn't get up one day and going, well, I'm going to run across Canada. He actually, he said, people can make your dreams come true if you work hard. So he ran 3,000 miles before he even started. And um, in his diary, he writes that even back then he was experiencing some of the warning signs that the doctors had told him about, but that wasn't going to stop him. That wasn't going to defer him. He was, once Terry made up his mind to do something, you could have an intelligent conversation with him. And if he made sense, and if it made sense to him, you could sway him. But once he had made a decision, you were wasting your time trying to talk to him. As a matter of fact, when they went down to meet him the first time in New Brunswick, one of the things that I was supposed to lay down the law to him was showing up for his medical appointments that he had promised to do, uh, which he wasn't doing. He said, I know my body. I'll go to a doctor when I want to see one. So when I get down there, I know mom and dad have already been there to talk to him about it, and they haven't been able to change his mind. And I'm trying to develop a relationship with him. And I think to myself, I'm not going to bring it up because that's not a way to start it. And also, if mom and dad can't change his mind, the guy who just shows up from Toronto certainly isn't going to change his mind. Um, so it, it was a shock. Um, that final day uh, was, uh, I, I, I can't put in the right words, devastating. Um uh, I, I, I've, I actually had been in southern Ontario at my mom and dad's 40th wedding anniversary when I got the call. I arrived in Thunder Bay the same time mom and dad arrived from out west. We got to the hospital. Mom and dad went into the room, and then Doug and Daryl and I went in, and Terry looked at us and said, the cancer's back. And my, I, 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 was, I broke down. Um, I said a few swear words, but then I went into automatic mode because the doctor said if he doesn't get out of here in the next few hours on a plane laying down, he's going to have to stay in Thunder Bay for at least a week because his one lung was filling up with fluid. So I immediately went into let's get Doug and Daryl onto a plane, let's get them home, let's find a plane to get Terry home, and it wasn't until we loaded him on the plane and I hugged him, and I told him I loved him, and uh, I said, I'll see you soon, and the door closed, and the plane taxied and took off, and that's when it really hit me. Um, yeah. And, and um, I think the next three days were just a blur to me after yeah. that. 
Yeah, tragic end, but surely an inspiring story for sure. The book is called Terry and Me, the inside story of Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope. Bill, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate this. Thank you, and thank you by having your listeners hear this. I want to share his legacy and keep his legacy alive. When I saw him the last time, I said, I'll make you live forever. I hope this book, in a way, does a little bit of that. Absolutely. All the best, Bill. Take care. Thank you very, very much. All right, there you go. That's Bill Biggers. The book is called Terry and Me. How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Just watch me. Include wiretapping, reducing other civil liberties in some ways? Yes, I think the society must take every means at its disposal to defend itself against the uh, emergence of a parallel power which defines the elected power in this country, and I think that goes to any distance. So long as there's a power in here which is challenging the elected representative of the people, I think that power must be stopped, and I think it's only, uh, I repeat, weak-kneed, bleeding hearts who are afraid to take these measures. It was a tough-talking Pierre Elliott Trudeau in 1970 when asked about how far he was prepared to go in dealing with not just the FLQ, uh, but the whole broader issue of Quebec separatism and to what extent that represented a security threat to Canada. Uh, the FLQ and their acts of violence, their kidnapping, that all did. Uh, but did separatism itself represent that threat? And just what did Pierre Trudeau mean when he said, just watch me? How far was he prepared to go? Now, look, we obviously know all about the uh, invocation of the War Measures Act. And we know a lot more as well about how Canadian officials uh, tried to keep tabs on the FLQ and those they believe were sympathetic to them. We had, of course, the Royal Commission of Inquiry into certain activities of the RCMP, better known as the McDonald Commission, uh, looking at uh, the actions uh, of the RCMP, uh, not just with the, the uh, October crisis, but, but certainly a lot of it was focused on that. And much has been written over the years uh, about the whole situation. So it seems odd that more than 50 years later, we would be learning something new, something, in fact, quite significant. As the Globe and Mail reports this morning, new research based on previously classified documents has revealed a secret operation within the office of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to gather intelligence about Quebec separatists following the 1970 October crisis. The effort appears to have lasted through 1971 and 1972 before it was undone by John Starnes, then head of the RCMP's security service, the precursor uh, to CSIS. So why would the prime minister's office have its own secret and separate intelligence operation? Why would the RCMP have concerns about that? How involved was the prime minister? Was any of this legal? Some pretty big questions this all raises. Joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, one of the researchers involved in this discovery. The research was published this week. uh, Dr. Dennis Molinaro, former national security analyst, professor of legal studies and a legal historian at Ontario Tech University. Uh, Dennis, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's set the stage of, of kind of the timeline of when, when all of this was going on. We had, of course, what we know as the October crisis of, of 1970. Once that was resolved, what happened after that then? Right. So what we've been basically putting together from, from our research is we, we have this series of documents that detail um, the creation of this one central unit within the prime minister's office. Uh, Mark Lalonde, the principal secretary of the PMO, is is actually heading in charge of it. And Claude Vidal is actually doing the day-to-day running of it. And from what we have gathered from the documents, 
uh, the the unit was specifically tasked with collecting intelligence on Quebecers, and I say Quebecers because the they were collecting intelligence on what they regard as separatism in terms of the separatist movement, not mm-hmm. particularly just on FLQ cells or or involvement, but writ large. Um, and what we find is that the director general then of the of the RCMP Security Service, John Starnes, uh, was appalled by this uh, and wanted nothing to do with it. Right, and and it's through his notes, which uh, had been classified up until recently, uh, that that we learn about all of this. Yeah, I mean, it, the, this is really the the gold is in actually John Starnes's documenting of what happened and and the meetings that he was having about the group. Um, basically, the RCMP was being asked to contribute. Uh, in terms of intelligence to this this exercise, and he was opposed in doing this because basically Canada is a democracy, and you can't be having um, a party, one political party, in the Liberal Party of Canada, because this was being run out of the PMO office, uh, using the intelligence service to collect intelligence on another political party, the Party Quebecois, and its supporters. Right. Um, and so this is really where he draws the line. But we have, you know, we from our from the memos, it seems as if. The operation continues, even though he's opposed to it. Um, and then he takes various measures to try to work behind the scenes to try to stop it. Right, because this would have been their purview, wouldn't it, in terms of gathering intelligence on threats, or more, maybe more specifically the FLQ. This would have been what, what the security service, I guess in a way the precursor to, to CSIS, would have been involved in. Yeah, and, and Starnes makes it clear that if there was you know, a, a threat of violence, if we're talking about revolutionaries, right. um, the RCMP was fine to collect intelligence on them. If there was different aspects of threat, you know, and breakdown and order, and people who were actually, you know, involved in violent activities, that was okay. But where he drew the line was that this was reaching beyond that, um, and this was uh, being run. They wanted basically RCMP services to work within the party, the Liberal Party, and and utilize that right. to collect intelligence. And he couldn't do that. Because absent any intelligence from from the RCMP Security Service, where would this operation, it was codenamed Fantan, by the way, where would this this operation have been able to to gather any intelligence? Well, this is the, this is it. So we know that they were utilizing the party, the party apparatus to collect. That we get that from Starnes' memos. They also had a, a lieutenant colonel of the military serving as part of this group, and that really um, gets Starnes alarmed because. Essentially, he said, you know, it's it's looking like you're utilizing the Canadian military to spy on Canadian citizens, uh, and the, you, you can't do this, <laughs> basically. So, um, you know, none of this. The biggest problem for us, not uh, amongst many, I guess I, I should say, right, is none none of this was made public in the McDonald Commission report, right, um, and that's very troubling for us because why didn't this become public? Um, why has this been sitting even still for 50 years under this narrative that CSIS was created out of RCMP run amok and engaged in rogue activities and the powers needed to be curtailed and a new service had to be created? Why has this narrative been sitting untouched when there's clearly a lot more to that story? And I think it, it raises for us, you know, the, the importance of having commissions of inquiry to investigate serious issues because it documents them. It documents them even if they're not made public. And at the same time, we can't be using classification 
to try to hide or cover up government scandal. Well, and, and surely the McDonald report would have had access to, to classified Absolutely. material, wouldn't they? Yes, we have a submission to the McDonald Commission and an interview that he does with the staff, um, basically having him tell them about this. Um, So they knew of it. It it was not unheard of, and and they interviewed people about it. And some of that testimony came out in 2010, but very piecemeal and not much behind it, uh, because we really don't get the real details about what the group was uh, unless you actually read the Starnes memos. Yeah, and, and ironically, it was the McDonald report, wasn't it, that, that called out Starnes himself because the RCMP Secret Service had actually uh, stolen, I, I think it was an electronic right. copyright of a, a PQ yeah. membership list. Yeah, and, and so all of that, uh, you know, a lot of what the RCMP is getting called out for takes place in this time period. It takes place yeah. during the time of Fan 10. Um, and we have, we actually have some documents where they're redacted that say things like, you know, uh, where the prime minister is saying, you know, certain things need to be collected, the RCB should be doing certain things, and it's redacted what, what he's asking for. And the RCMP is responding by saying, if you want us to do that, then, you know, the prime minister has to sign off on that. But we don't know what, what's being asked. I guess that's one of the big questions in all of this. Where, where does the prime minister himself fit in here? Well, it becomes pretty clear, even from the cabinet uh, documents that we did get, um, that the prime minister is has a direct hand in this. He's not, um, you know, someone who just did not know right. about what his security services were doing. Uh, we have every indication to think that he knew exactly what was going on uh, and was okay with what was going on. And it wasn't really until scandal hit the press that the McDonald Commission gets called, and really what it starts to look like is the RCMP getting thrown under the bus. So this this operation winds down or is shut down at some point. We know this was uh, 1971, where where this, this early 1971, where this started. Do we have an end point here? Do we know the circumstances and the timeline for when this this would have been shut down? Yeah. Not not really a hard end point, no. I mean, the, the, the memo seemed to indicate that the new Solicitor General, Warren Allman, was, was you know, keen to, to stop this. That, that comes about in 72, really towards the end of 71 into 72. But we don't have any documents that actually specifically say this is when this operation stopped uh, definitively. So we don't have that, you know, uh, definite end point here. So it existed for more than a year, for sure. Um, yeah. So the extent to which then it was able to gather information or, or how that information was used, uh, that's something else we don't really know. No, and we, we have from the memos, too, that um, whatever it was doing, they were pretty efficient and good at it in terms of collecting information and intelligence. Um, but it, it, it starts to really start to worry Starnes going closer to 72 because he says, you know, this is going to get out. Um, and there's there's more indications that that this group exists. And right now people are mistaking it for a different group. Um, but I don't know how long that's going to last. And he actually tries to go behind the scenes with the RCMP commissioner to the Canadian military and ask that the military officer that is actually posted uh, as part of the executive of the group be recalled. Uh, and they did this from what we gather, behind the Prime Minister's back to try to get this stopped. Right, and, and to think how different this all might have been if Starnes had, had gone along with all of this, right? Would, would this have, have gone on much longer? Would it have been much larger in scope? It's hard to tell. It, it, could, have, it could very well have been. 
I mean, for all we know, it still continued on. Well, yeah, right. Objected. I mean, and that, that's the, the troubling part is that this is still sitting uh, behind closed doors, and it shouldn't be. Why, why should this be, be kept away um, from the Canadian public? We should see this. We should see this to get the whole story of what happened in those years. Right. And maybe that would help answer the question, I guess, as to whether this was all legal. Based on what we know about it, based on Starn's own concerns, I, I don't know. Can we draw any conclusions at this point about its legality? Uh, I think they were more than likely probably thinking maybe that that Crown prerogative would have would have somehow covered them, uh, Crown immunity to some degree. But that was already on shaky ground then. Um, you know, the RCMP was asking for um, you know uh, more clarity on national security and and asking for a national security act, which they weren't getting. Um, so definitely, I think, you know, we're talking about not constitutional, um, their illegality for sure. I can't see how this ever would have been okay in that context. So where do we find more answers or how do we get to more answers here? Uh, we need more. I think part of the the problem here too, is that we, we have right now the troves of historical information sitting in our, in, in different government departments, not being released, piling up, not having the staff to go through them, not having the resources to go through them. We need mandatory declassification on documents after a certain set of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that would, that would help for this, uh, getting, getting the full story out. Um, certainly, I think that on an issue like this, when we're talking about the intelligence services and accountability and oversight, um, it, it makes it more important for sure that we get that out. Absolutely. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here, but certainly some important revelations uh, at this point here. Dr. Molinero, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, there you go. Dennis Molinero, legal historian at Ontario Tech University, former national security analyst. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty significant. That would have been a huge deal if that had emerged at the time. So why did this never come out? You know, never emerged at any point through the uh, remainder of uh, Trudeau's time in office. The McDonald Commission never seemed to stumble across this, or maybe they deliberately overlooked it. I don't know. It's a pretty big revelation, and yet somehow it's only coming out now in 2023. So that's weird. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.